And if you've got a Bible, open up to James chapter 1. We'll be in verses 12 to 18 this morning. We've been working our way through James. We've kind of been peeling back the layers of James chapter 1 for the last several weeks together. And James chapter 1 is kind of like an onion, okay? You ever been in the kitchen before and you start cutting up an onion? It makes you cry a little bit. It's kind of like James chapter 1, all right? It makes you cry a little bit. It's a lot about trials and a lot about hardships and a lot about difficulties. But James has been peeling back the layers or of what it is to suffer trials and what it is uh, to find ourselves in a position of hardship. And so in verses uh, 2 through 4, James says, Trials are inevitable, and they're diverse, and they're complex. Everyone's going to face them. Everyone's going to wrestle with them. And they're going to cause, um, or they're there to create growth in our life, to have a sanctifying value. In verses 5 to 8, James says, You need wisdom in the midst of your trials in order to be able to navigate them sufficiently to keep from sinking. In verses uh, 9 through 11 that we saw last week, we saw that basically every experience that you and I I have on the spectrum of human life, from the things that devastate us the most to the things that we most delight in, are a trial. Whether it be poverty or prosperity, whether it be singleness or marriage, whether it be childlessness or bearing children, every experience that you and I have on the spectrum of life's experiences is a trial that we have to face and that we have to encounter that God intends to sanctify us and grow us. And so James has been peeling back the layers of our trials all throughout the first chapter of this little letter that he writes to the church. And he comes to this particular section in verses 12 to 18, and he continues to peel back that layer at least one more time in chapter 1 to kind of get down another layer within the realm of our trials and what happens in the midst of our trials. Because what James says to us in verses 12 to 18 that we're going to look at here in a moment, is he says this, he says, every trial is an occasion for temptation in your life. Every single trial that you face is an occasion for temptation in your life. Have you ever noticed you put two people in the same situation, have the same circumstances surrounding them, maybe even the same people involved in their lives, the same things are going on, they're facing the same trial, and while one, one of those people weathers the storm and like a tree, its roots grow deeper and stronger and more resilient, the other snaps in half and is carried three counties away by the wind. You know, some people in the same situation, the same circumstances, some people are crushed by the weight of their trials, and other people are changed by them and grow through them. But why is that? Why is it that some people kind of get derailed in the midst of a trial, and it seems as if there's a, a, a freight train carrying a tanker car full of millions of gallons of crude oil that just toppled over on the side of the road and it erupted and caused everything in a three-mile radius to burn to the ground? Right? Some people in the midst of their trials, they get derailed and they get toppled and they get crushed. Why is it that some folks are resilient in the midst of them and some folks are crushed by them? And I think James comes to wrestle with that question here in the text. Because in every trial is an occasion for temptation. And how we respond to that makes a big difference as to whether or not we stand, stand firm and our roots grow deeper and we become more resilient or whether or not we're snapped like a twig and carried three counties away. So in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, James says this. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, James, in verses 12 to 18, he's writing with a pastor's heart. He's writing with a very pastoral tone. Look what he says in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I love you, and I don't want you to be taken off guard. I don't want you to be sucked under. I don't want you to be toppled over. I don't want you to be deceived in the midst of your trials. So he's writing with a pastor's heart and a pastor's tone. But as he does so, he talks to us about temptation in the midst of our trials. Temptation in the midst of our trials. Where does it come from? What does it result in if we yield to it? And how do we fight against it? Those are the three things we're going to see in this text this morning. Where does it come from? What does it result in if we yield to it? And how do we fight against it? Listen to what James says about where it comes from. This is what James tells us in verses 12 to 14. He says, The occasion, he says, Do not confuse the occasion for and the source of your temptation. Do not confuse. Do not get those things backwards. Do not confuse the occasion for and the source of your temptation. Listen, the greatest threat to you and I's faithfulness to Jesus, the greatest threat to our continuing to cling to God's promises in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a hardship, in the midst of a difficulty, does not come from outside of our borders, but from inside of them. I saw a quote on Facebook earlier, um, a couple of weeks ago, from Abraham Lincoln. It was on his birthday. How fitting, right? And so somebody posted a little picture out there with Abraham Lincoln's uh, photo. um, And this quote, he said, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. And the same is true for you and I. James says, don't confuse the occasion for your temptation and the source of your temptation. James says that the, 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 that the greatest threat to your faith, that the greatest threat to your loyalty to Jesus in the midst of your trials doesn't come from somewhere out there, but it comes from right here. It comes from within, not from without, not overseas, but at home, James says. Look at what he says in verses 2 to 12. He's been addressing the issue of trials that God uses to test our faith. And then in verse 13, he shifts and he begins to use the word a little bit differently to speak of temptation that arises in the midst of our trials. James says essentially that when we are in the midst of a trial, we cannot say that God, we, we can say that God is testing us, but we cannot say that God is tempting us. In verses 13 and 14, he says, don't say that God is tempting you. Don't put that off on God because God cannot be tempted by evil. And he says, God tempts no one. God may be testing you in the midst of a trial with a, has a sanctifying value to, to grow you and stretch you and change you. But God is not tempting you, James says. James says the temptation does not come from our outward circumstances. The temptation comes from within us, from within our hearts. Listen, in your poverty or your prosperity, you can say that God is testing you, but the temptation to find your status or your security or your significance in what you do or do not own, that comes from in here. 
not from out here. We might say in our sickness or in our health, in our disease or in our well-being, we can say that God is testing us, but the temptation to despise God on account of the sickness that we have or to neglect and forget God because of the relative good health that we enjoy, that doesn't come from somewhere out there. That comes from in here. Or we might say that in our weddedness or our singleness, we can say that God is testing us. There's a trial to marriage. There's a trial to singleness. But the temptation to do and say anything to get or keep a person in our lives, that doesn't come from somewhere out there. That comes from in here. James says the greatest threat to your loyalty to Christ doesn't come from outside influences or circumstances and situations. It comes from your own heart. It comes from your desires, he says in verse 14. He says, what is it that entices you and drags you away? He says, it's the desires of your own heart. It's something coming from within, not from without. Now, most of us naturally assume, and and some of our translations actually say this in verse 14. Um, It says, your evil desires. Like, if you have the NIV, it adds that word evil. That word evil isn't in the Greek text. And the word that's used to translate, that, that in our English word desire, that's translated out of the Greek in that particular reference is the word epithumia. And the word epithumia is a kind of a compound word. It's got a prefix and then a root. And the root is thumia, which means desire. And the word epi, you put it on the front of anything, right? It means over, over. In other words, intense longing and desire. And so James is saying the root of your temptation, where temptation comes from in the midst of your trials, is not from outside, but from inside and from epi-desires, over-desires, intense desires that exist within your heart that cause you to long for and pursue something, even good things, too much, too much. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more later. right? But what James is saying to us is this. Listen, the take home for you and I this morning is this. In the midst of our trials, we can never say that it's our, our circumstances that need to be changed. We can never say that it's our environment that needs to be changed. We can never say that it's the people around us that need to change. Because our temptation doesn't come from the people who are around us. Our temptation doesn't come from the circumstances that we are in. Our temptation doesn't come from the situations in which we find ourselves. James says our temptation comes from our over-desires in our hearts. And so what that means for you and I is at least this. It means that you and I have to own our actions. We have to own our actions. James says... You can't blame it on someone else. You can't blame the things that you do upon your circumstances. You can't blame the things that you do upon your environment. You can't blame the things that you do upon the people who are around you and what they're saying or what they're doing. James says, you've got to take ownership for your actions yourself. He says to a culture, particularly to our culture, that is so accustomed to pulling out the victim card from the back pocket and slamming it down to trump every responsibility that we have for our actions. He says into that culture, he says, stop playing the victim card and own your actions. Own your actions because you're responsible for them. James essentially says this. 
He says, you can't blame your circumstances. You can't blame the people around you. You can't blame your environment. You can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say my kids made me do it. You can't say my boss made me do it. You can't say my parents made me do it. And you can't say my spouse made me do it. Because we always act consistent with what we most desire, what we're longing for in here. John Calvin said it this way as he reflected upon this text in James. He said this, he said, though Satan instills his poison and fans the flame of our corrupt desires within us, we are, not, we are yet not carried away by any external force to its commission of sin, but our own flesh entices us and we willingly yield to its allurements. Calvin says, listen, Satan may inject poison and he may indeed inflict uh, difficulties and trials in our lives. There may be things that God allows Indeed, that would bring hardship for us. He said, but we can't look at the devil and we can't look at anybody else around us and say that external person or that external force made me do what I'm doing because you and I never act inconsistent with what we most want to do. It's desire that leads us to that. John Owen said it this way. He said, temptations and occasions put nothing into a man but only draw out what was in him before. So the occasion for your temptation is not the same as the source of your temptation. You might be in an occasion where temptation begins to rise, but the source of that is something going on in here, not something going on out here. And so we can't, we can't blame our kids or our spouse or our job for the outburst of anger in our lives. Right? Those may be the occasion for your sin, but they're not the source of it. Or you can't blame Guys, listen, you can't blame a girl who has on a little, well, let me say it this way, not enough clothes, right? You can't blame a girl who has on not enough clothes, a scantily dressed woman. You cannot blame her for your temptation. She may be the occasion for your temptation, but the source of that is something that's coming out of your heart, something that's coming from within, or we might say, you know, this means that the marketing machine of corporate America may be the occasion for your materialistic greed, but it's not the source of it. You might look at all the commercials and advertisements and, uh, and, and web ads and TV ads and newspaper ads and say, those things are so alluring to me and I'm tempted and drawn away toward materialistic greed. That might be the occasion for that temptation, but it's not the source of it. James says it comes from within, from your desires. So we've got to own our actions. We can't just, it doesn't mean that, this means that we can't just change our environment or change our employment or changing our family will not solve the problem. James says the problem's in here, it's not out there. So do not confuse the occasion of your temptation for the source of it. Now, second thing, what happens whenever you and I yield to it? We're in the midst of a trial and things are getting hard and we yield to the temptation that begins to arise from within our hearts. What happens next, James says, is incredibly serious and sobering. James says this, he says, sin, it will kill you. It will kill you. James says these over-desires, they become fatal attractions in our lives. And we're drawn to them even though they are destroying us, even though they are killing us. 
In verses 14 and 15, there's a sequence to this sin as we are lured and enticed by desire, and desire conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, James says, it brings forth death. The sequence is this. The child of unchecked desire in your life is sinful actions and indulgences. And James says the grandchild of unchecked and unrestrained desire in your life is death. He says desire bears forth, brings forth, gives birth to sin in our lives. And sin, when it's fully grown and becomes mature, it kills us. It kills us. Charles Spurgeon, a Bible teacher in England in the 1800s, said it this way. He said that sin is born of lust and it brings forth dust. He's a little poet there, right? A little Dr. Seuss action going on. It's born of lust and desire, but it brings forth dust and sends us back to the dust from which we were formed. And so some of us go, man, really? Really, how does sin create death in our lives? How does sin produce death? death in our lives? How does sin give birth? How does the over-desire for even good things bring forth death in us? At least three ways. First of all, unchecked desire and indulgences incurred the judgment of physical death. In Genesis chapter 3, you see that whenever our first parents go to the tree of the knowledge of, 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 of good and evil, that the woman sees that it's the light to the eyes and what? Desired. To make one wise. And so what draws her into sin is what she sees and what she wants. What draws our first parents into sin is what they see and what they want. There's a longing that rises up within their hearts. And because of that first sin in the garden, physical death was introduced into the the created order. And our first parents are banished from from the garden so they can no longer have access to the tree of life which would mean they, would have, they, would, they could live in their unredeemed state forever. That would not be a good situation. So it brings forth first physical death, but also unchecked desire in our life, even for good things. And these indulgences will lead to all kinds of temporal deaths. All kinds of temporal deaths. And these most frequently take place by in, incrementally by degrees in our lives. Thomas Manton said this, he said, a little stick sets the great ones on fire and a wisp of straw often enkindles a great block of wood so we are drawn on by the lesser evils to greater. No man grows downright wicked at first, but it rises, it rises to it by degrees. An unchecked desire in your life was the foundation of death in the world, but it's also the foundation of all kinds of temporal deaths that take place in our life. Listen, you and I would say that we, a, a desire to have a good reputation, be well thought of, is a good thing, right? Have a good reputation in the community so people aren't, aren't slandering you and they don't have anything to criticize you about necessarily because of things that you've done that are wrong. We all want a good reputation. We all want to be well, have, uh, we, we have kind of a, 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 a well-standing status with those who are around us. But listen, an unchecked sinful desire to maintain respectability to the degree that it leads to deception in your life. Well, whenever you're caught doing something that you should not have been doing, that you would lie about it because you want to maintain that level of respectability and you want to be respected by others. So, that, so, so in order to do that, what do you do? Because that's the over-desire in your life. To maintain respectability, you lie. See that? An over-desire, even for a good thing, brings about sin. 
in our lives. Whenever we deceive in order to maintain respectability, and eventually, if we continue down that course of deceiving and lying, it ultimately eventually leads to a death. It leads to loss of a job one day. Right? When your boss finds out you've been cooking the books a little bit. Or it might lead to a loss of a relationships with others when they find out what you've been doing behind their back. Or it eventually will lead to a loss of yourself. Because you will, have, you will have gone down that trail for so long to maintain respectability that you won't even know who you are anymore. And the irony of the situation is this, is that you started out deceiving others and lying to maintain respectability in their eyes, but when you look in the mirror, you don't even respect yourself because you don't know who you are anymore. An over-desire for good things brings about death. Being, being willing to do anything to get it and keep it brings about death. You might say an unchecked sinful desire or indulgence in work. Work's a good thing, right? God ordains work in the garden. He says to the first, our first parents, he says to the man, go and work the fields, go and work the ground, bearing forth fruit, right? Do something. Work's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a result of the fall. It's not a part of the curse. Painful labor and toil in our work is a part of the curse. Work is a part of God's good intention for human flourishing, but an over-desire for work, an over-desire for performance, an over-desire for achievement brings forth death in our lives. It destroys relationships with your spouse. It destroys relationships with your kids. Kids don't even know who you are anymore. And eventually, it might even take your own life. Do you know you can work yourself to death? An over-desire for a good thing brings about sin and death. Or we might even say this, an over-desire for sexual fulfillment, which God designed to be a good thing enjoyed between a man and a woman in the confines of covenant marriage. An over-desire for sexual fulfillment will eventually lead you to a death of conscience. It'll lead you to a death of intimacy. You'll be able to have intimacy with someone, true intimacy with someone, and be fully exposed to them. It'll lead to a death perhaps even physically, of a disease that will take your life. An over-desire for beauty. Beauty's a good thing. God's an artist, right? He's a, someone who creates things that are incredibly enjoyable to look at. You go to the mountains and you see the peaks as they rise up and the snow that caps them and the forests that rise up to the tree line. It's gorgeous, right? God's created beauty. But an over-desire for beauty in your life. An over-desire for beauty in your life is destructive because you'll pursue a perfect appearance, and while you may look good externally, internally there'll be a withering that takes place in your life. See, an over-desire for good things, even good things, ultimately brings forth death when we're willing to do anything to get it or keep it. James says, the problem isn't out there, it's in here. And whenever you yield to that desire, James says, it will kill you. It will kill you. The third thing James says is unchecked desires, or we might say out of what James says, the unchecked desires um, and indulgences will not only, lead to a phys- not only lead to a physical death, not only lead to all these temporal deaths, but ultimately will lead to eternal death. If you yield and give yourself over to unchecked desire all of your life, and there is no resistance, there's a good bet that you are not a Christian who has the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. 
bringing conviction of sin, bringing conviction of an idolatry that you place this good thing on this high pedestal and you're willing to climb any mountain and forge any valley in order to get it and keep it no matter what it costs you. Ultimately, the, the result of sin in our lives is eternal death. Paul says in Romans 5 that one trespass by one man there in the garden led to condemnation for all men. And Paul says also in Romans 3 that the wages of our sin, what we get whenever this unchecked desire boils over into sinful action, that what we earn on account of that is death, separation from God forever. It's very sobering, right? It's very sobering. James says the problem's not out there, it's in here. And if you and I do not crush sin at the stage of desire, then it manifests itself into action as we nurture, cradle, feed, care for, and raise those desires and actions. They eventually grow up, and they mature, and they kill us. Right? No healthy baby that's brought home from the hospital, that's kept warm and well-fed, and it's nurtured, and you change its diaper, and you give it food. And you, it, it, what happens with a healthy child? It grows, doesn't it? It matures, it becomes smarter, it becomes stronger, it becomes faster, it becomes more able. You see, for some of us, we've been sliding food and water and blankets under the door to sin in our lives, those desires in our lives for so long that we've just been nurturing it. We've been keeping those desires very warm and well-fed. We've cradled them. We've given them all the nutrients that they need in order to continue to mature and grow. Listen. If we continue to nurture and care for and keep these desires warm and well-fed in our lives, they'll eventually kill us. Little Johnny's going to grow up one day, right? He's going to get bigger, and he's going to get stronger, and he's going to get faster, and he's going to get smarter, and he's going to sneak up behind you in the kitchen one day and break your neck and bury your body three paces left of the crepe myrtle in the backyard, if you continue to foster and feed those over-desires, it's eventually going to lead to death. So listen, a couple of things I want to suggest to you this morning about what to do about this. First of all, don't play with and cuddle it. Don't pet it like a cute little dog's got rabies because eventually it's going to bite you and kill you. Okay? What you have to do, what I have to do, is shut the door to sin in your life. And the first step to doing that is by being perceptive. You have to perceive sin's true intent. See it for what it is. Stop sliding food and water and blankets to a murderer who wants to kill you. Richard Baxter said this. He said, spare it not, for it will not spare you. Kill it before it kills you. If the thoughts of death and the grave and rottenness are not pleasant to you, do not let the thoughts of sin be pleasant. Listen to every temptation to sin as you would listen to a temptation to self-murder. And as you would do if the devil brought you a knife and tempted you to cut your throat with it, do so when he offers you the bait of sin. you got to know it's it true intent. Right? Because oftentimes we think sin's going to be so pleasurable that if I give myself over to this desire, it's going to produce good fruit in my life and I'll be happy and satisfied. When in actuality... When actually all he's doing is baiting the hook with whatever you desire most. And then eventually he crosses your eyes with a hard hook set and he pulls you out of the water, puts you in his live well, takes you home and sets you on the cleaning table with an electric knife and guts you. You gotta know what sin's true intent is. 
You got to be perceptive. In addition, don't be presumptive. Don't be presumptive. Don't presume you can draw a line and stop at any time. Listen, uh, John of the Cross said this. He said, however small an attachment may be, do not be too confident that you can cut it off at any time, but cut it off at once. For if you do not have the courage to destroy it when, it's at, when it is but beginning, how can you presume upon success when it has taken root and grown? He says, listen, the, 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 the deeper the roots grow, the harder it's going to be to pluck it out. You ever found that to be true with weeds in your yard? <laughs> the longer they sit there, the harder it is they are to root up. Don't be presumptive. Don't think, well, it's just a little sin, right? It's just a little, just a little one. It's so cute and cuddly right now. I'm gonna, I can give myself over to it because if you give yourself over to it and you continue to give yourself over to it, it continues to grow and it gets stronger and faster and smarter and slipperier. Don't be presumptive, thinking that you can cut it off whenever you want to. In addition, you got to be proactive. you got to be proactive. Don't fall asleep with the door of your life wide open to sin. Thomas Akempis said, We must be especially alert against the beginnings of temptation, for the enemy is more easily conquered if he has refused admittance to the mind and is met beyond the threshold when he knocks. Listen, it's much easier to keep somebody out of your house if you keep them on your porch and let them into your foyer. And one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we do this, now listen, I'm not the movie Nazi, okay? I'm not the entertainment Nazi, right? I'm not up here to say no movies and music for you, right? You can't watch or listen to anything. You can't read anything, right, other than the Bible. Go home and read your Bible and don't listen to, look at, or read anything else. Like, that's not me, okay? But what I do want to say is this. There are some corrosive influences in our culture and the prevailing winds of our culture continue to churn up more and more and more corrosive influences in our lives. And we, I think we would be fools to say, we'd be fools to say that exposing our minds and exposing our hearts to certain materials does not awaken within us desires that are dishonoring to God. We'd be fools to say that. See, there are certain things that you've got to cut off at the threshold of your home. There are certain influences that you have to draw a line and say, I'm not going to expose myself to that, to, to that literature. I'm not going to expose myself to that production. Let me encourage you, draw a line. Keep it on the, the porch and don't let it into the house. Be proactive as opposed to reactive. To so be perceptive, don't be presumptive and be proactive. But see, you and I's problem, you and I's problem, this is all good. You say, I got these three P's, right? <laughs> That's great. I got three P's. I can go do something now. I'm going to do something this week. I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to begin to filter the things that I'm watching and listening to. I'm not going to be presumptive. I understand that sin wants to kill me. doesn't want to just play with me, right? If you play with sin, eventually it's going to break your nose and, and eventually it'll break your heart. I understand it's true intent. And so I'm going to be proactive, I'm not going to be presumptive. Right? I'm going to be perceptive. I've got it. Got these three P's down. See, the problem with you and I, though, if you're anything like me, my problem is that I can take these three P's and I can go and try and do something this week. The problem is I don't always want to do it. 
The problem is not in the action, it's in the desire. It's in the desire. See, if you went to the doctor tomorrow and you sat down with a doctor and the doctor gave you a diagnosis and said, listen, you have a disease that is going to ravish your body and kill you. You've got to stop eating your favorite food because your favorite food is continuing to feed this disease. It's continuing to feed this cancer. It's continuing to feed this, this abnormality in your body and eventually it's going to destroy you and take your life. If you're anything like me, you'd probably say for a couple of weeks, ah, probably not going to eat that anymore. Problem is, problem is, our spiritual taste buds by nature are inclined to love and drink and eat poison that is destructive for our bodies, for our souls. Listen, if I went to the doctor tomorrow and the doctor told me, listen, you've got a disease that's going to kill you, it's going to take your life if you don't stop eating this. And my wife was sitting there next to me and she was holding my hand and we were both thinking about what the future is going to hold for us. I probably turned to her and said, babe, we probably ought to go to the funeral home. <laughs> go pick out a casket. Go pick out a headstone. Because I'm probably not going to forever stop eating this. I like it too much. I want it too much. To which she would probably respond with all of the grace and love and compassion that any mere mortal could muster by giving me an open hand slap to the face and say, you will not eat that again. To which I would say, yes, ma'am, <laughs> right? But not of my own will, not of my own will, because I like the way it tastes too much. And that's you and I's problem. It's you and I's problem. So we continue to give ourselves over to sin, and we continue to give ourselves over to these desires because we like the way that it tastes too much. And in and of our own will and of our own accord, we will never stop. And James knows that. And that's why in verses 17 and 18, he takes our eyes off of our sin. He takes our eyes off of our desires, of those over-desires. He takes our eyes off of our actions. And he lifts them up to our Savior. He takes them off of the good things that we are overly desirous of, and he lifts them up to our God. And in verse 17, he says this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James says, God does not change. He is good. He gives good and perfect gifts. And then he goes on in verse 18 to tell us the very best gift he has given to anyone who would receive it. In verse 18, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, James says this. He says, temptation doesn't originate from out there. It originates from here. So don't confuse the source and the occasion for it. He says that if you yield to it, it's going to eventually lead to death. Death, all kinds of temporal deaths. And if you continue to give yourself over to it without any check in your life, there will be eternal death. He says, and your problem isn't just that, isn't just that, right? What you're, isn't just what you're doing, but what you're wanting, and so James says, you've got to kill sin in your life by choking it out. You've got to starve it, and you've got to choke it. Now, those are kind of violent metaphors, right? 
But sin wants to inflict violence and damage to you. And so you have to respond with serious, sober action by starving it. Right? You quit sliding food and blankets and water under the door to it, those desires, and you got to choke it out. You got to choke it out. There's two ways, or three ways, really, to get rid of weeds in your yard, okay? Right? It's, it's kind of that time of the year where we all start looking at our yards and we see all these patches of green coming up, but they're not grass, okay? And so when you see all these weeds coming up within your yard, there's three ways you can go about addressing those. You can poison them, right? You can take a bunch of chemicals and just coat your entire yard with them. Or you can go around and you can individually try and pluck up every single weed, okay? And you can try and pull every one out of the ground. you got to get down to its roots and pull it out. But the third way that you can do, that you can limit the amount of weeds that come up in your yard is by developing a very thick, a thick turf grass. So that whenever the seeds of those weeds fall down to the ground. They don't have the water. They don't have the light. They don't have the nutrition that they need in order to germinate and produce a weed that's going to infiltrate the rest of your yard. Three ways you can do it. You can poison them, you can pull them, or you can choke them out. And James says what you've got to do with sin, what you've got to do with those over-desires, even for good things, you've got to choke them out with the desire for the best. With the desire for the best. James says, what is it that God has done to rescue you from sin? What is it that God has done to rescue you from the penalty of sin, from eternal death? If you are a Christian, what is it that God has done? What good and perfect gift has he given you that is consistent with his character, that is consistent with his nature? And James says in verse 18, what God has done is of his own will, not of your will, of his own will, he brought you forth. James says what sin does is it brings forth death. What God does is he brings forth life. And you have to starve sin by feasting on God. You have to choke out sin by reminding yourself of the gospel. James says of his own will. You didn't do anything to contribute to what God has done to bring you life. But God said live and you came to life. You passed over from death to life. God said, see, and there was light before your eyes that allowed you to see the glory and beauty of Jesus. Of his own will, he brought you forth. How? By the word of truth. And when that, word, when that phrase, word of truth, shows up elsewhere in the New Testament, oftentimes it refers to the gospel. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, that the word of truth is the good news or the gospel of our salvation, what God has done to save us from Satan's sin and death. And it's found in the good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to redeem you, to rescue you, to save you. And James says, don't be deceived by sin. It wants to kill you, but God God has given you life in his son. By the word of truth. That means there was an occasion in your life. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, there was a juncture in your life where you were sitting under the preaching of God's word and the gospel was communicated. Or you were reading the Bible and the gospel, the good news of Jesus' sacrificial work on your behalf stood off the pages to you. Right? It was like it just jumped out and all of a sudden you saw it when you hadn't seen it before. 
Or you heard it and you had never really heard it before. And James says, when that happened, God said, live, and you came to life. God said, see, and there was light before your eyes of his own will, not yours. In other words, God graciously reached down. And to someone who was dead in sin, he gave you life. And if you and I are going to have any hope any hope of resisting the desires that rise up within our hearts in the midst of trials, whether they be on the negative end of the spectrum or what we would consider to be the positive end of the spectrum. James says what you and I have to do is remind ourselves over and over and over and over and over again of God's grace, of his his perfect and good and gracious giving of life. You got to stare into the gospel and say, he said live and I came to life. He said see and there's light before my eyes. I cannot believe that he would take someone who was so rebellious and so hard-hearted and so broken and give them life. And so as you dwell on the goodness of God in the gospel, the good and perfect gift of by his own will bringing you to life, you begin to cultivate a thick turf grass in your life. So when the seeds of temptation begin to try and germinate in your heart, there's not enough nutrients for them. And they can't sprout into action. See, it's not enough to go around and continue to try and pluck up all these weeds as they kind of try and emerge in your life. And for some of you, that's been your mode of operation over the course of your entire life is you try to take weed after weed and pluck it and pluck it and pluck it and pluck it. And all of a sudden, as soon as you pluck it, there's another weed coming up over here. As soon as you pluck that one, there's another weed coming up over here. Because we've been trying to fight at the level of our actions. James says you've got to fight at the level of your desires of what you want. And to do that, you got to starve sin. you got to choke it out with the good news of a gracious, loving, self-giving God who brought you to life. Now, for some of us in the room this morning, your entire mode of operation over the course of your life has been tried to deal at the level of action at the level of action. You might despise sin because of its effects in your life, right? If you're not a Christian this morning, you might despise sin because it causes all these kind of hurtful things in your life. But you've not yet reached the point where you despise sin because of the offense that it is to God and what it cost him to redeem us. Do you despise sin? Not just because of what it does to you, but because of what it did, does to his heart. It grieves the heart of the one who created you, who is the father of lights, who loves you. Do you despise sin because of what it cost him and his son? If you do not despise sin on account of those things, then there's a good bet that God has not yet said live and you've come to life. God has not yet said see and there's been light before your eyes. If you are a Christian this morning, I just want to encourage you, stop trying to just work at the level of action and pluck up all the weeds as they emerge but begin to fertilize 
and cultivate desires in your heart that run counter to the over-desires that are so saturated in our culture. Otherwise, otherwise, you're going to be playing the addition-subtraction game all of your life. You pull this one up, and here comes another. You pull this one up, and here comes another. You pull this one up, here comes another. Choke it out. Stare into the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, given for sin and sinners. As a picture of what God will do, he says the first fruits of all of his creatures, as a picture of what God will do for all of creation one day. So there's a good chance if you're like me, there's a good chance that there's still plenty of nutrients in your heart in your life, to allow seeds of temptation to germinate into actions of sin. This morning, we're going to come and receive the Lord's table together. And as we do, stare into the face of the very Son of God who was given for you. And remember his body that was broken. Remember his blood that was shed. And kill sin. Kill sin by choking it out. Kill sin by depriving it of the nutrients because your heart is so satisfied in who God is and what he's done that there's not enough nutrients to allow those seeds to germinate in your life. Don't confuse the occasion for the source. Don't yield to it because as you do, it will grow in strength and might and power and eventually will break your neck. And you had to fight, not just the level of actions and trying to pluck up all these weeds, it's the level of the desires and cultivating a thick, healthy love for God in your heart through the gospel. As I pray, men who will be serving the elements will come and, and situate themselves. Our band's going to come and receive, and then they'll come and get set on stage, and they'll lead us in a couple of songs as we reflect on the goodness and grace of God in Jesus Christ and receive his broken body and shed blood for us. Let's pray together. Father, we come today. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that though we were dead in sin, you've made us alive in Christ. That though we were lost, that you sought us and found us, and you brought us to, you drew us to yourself in love. That of your own will, you brought us forth, you gave us life, not on account of anything that we have done, but on account of what you have done. Father, for those in the room this morning who perhaps have been trying all of their lives to pluck up sin because they despise its effects in their lives, but they never come to a place where they despise it because of what it does to your heart as a loving father and what it has done to your son our eldest brother. Father, I pray that as the gospel stands before them in both word and picture, I pray, Father, that you would say live and they would live, that you would say see and there would be light before their eyes. And for those of us who do have that light, those of, who, those of us who have seen, 
and have tasted of your goodness in Christ, I pray that today as we come to the table, we would come in repentance of sin. We would turn away from the over-desires that cause so much pain and hardship and inflict so much loss and death in our life. And as we turn away from them, we would cultivate a healthy love for you that would begin to choke out all the other expressions of sin in our lives because we would fight at a level of desire. May you give us grace to do what you have commanded us to do that we of our own wills are incapable of doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.